Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. We are continuing our response uh, to Trent Horn. I recorded a response yesterday. It had technical problems. There's... The program that I'm using, I love the program. Um, it, it, it's exactly what you need to do this kind of interaction with video. But once in a while, it's happened a couple times, you can simply lose the video window and can't find it. I and three other guys clicked on everything in that program yesterday. We never found it again. Those poor guys are going to have to take the same video and insert it in over the audio that I was playing. Uh, it made it a little bit tougher, but uh, Jeff and I, Jeff Durbin and I responded to uh, Trent Horn's thing on uh, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, nearly church. Um, and it, it was interesting that uh, someone on Discord had made the comment that the next video that Trent posted was in defense of the bodily assumption of Mary and the accusation, and it's a true accusation, that there simply isn't any evidence for it in the early church. Well, that's an argument from silence. He had just done a video on the absence of evidence for belief in eternal security. <laughs> but that's not an argument from silence. And, of course, you can't even pretend. I mean, I, you, I, I just don't even know how they do it with a straight face. Try to pretend to make a biblical argument for the bodily assumption of Mary in comparison to making a biblical argument for Jesus not failing to save his people. That's pretty easy to do. Uh, but anyways, that's on Apologia Radio, and I haven't seen, to be honest with you, I haven't seen where that's dropped yet. Uh, we were going to... I said because we're going to have to do all that extra editing, which I was trying to save the guys from doing uh, and only made it harder on them. Um... I didn't think they'd be able to get it out by today, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so Trent's going to be really busy <laughs> because um, Gavin Ortland put out a video today, I think, responding to yesterday's video on the bodily assumptions. So the videos, they do be a flying, and you have to you have to think about it. If we were doing formal debates, and even if you made them, you know, two and a half hours long, um, the the time of presentation in a debate just isn't all that long. And so that's the trade-off. Uh, when we're doing it this way, you have to listen to one side, then you listen to the other side, and, and then the other side responds. And and the problem is, you know, the ones we're responding to from Trent are about 24 minutes long. By the time you play his stuff, um, then it everything just balloons in size and it, it becomes challenging. So anyway, uh, so this is just simply uh, go along with, yes, with uh, uh, Tuesday uh, continuing and I'm picking up right at the same spot. And thankfully... Uh, I've got the program working again, and I have the video. I was concerned. I'll be honest with you. I was concerned after what happened yesterday that I was going to come in here and fire this thing up, and I wasn't going to have video any longer. But it didn't work out that way. So, yeah, yeah, it should be should be ready to go. Should be ready to go. Um, so we are uh, still at the very beginning, but we will pick up the pace here. Uh, of uh, and we remember in the last episode. We went through, you know, Matthew 22, and um, we looked at Peter's description, and we, we've talked a lot about the context and done some exegesis and stuff here. 
uh, because one of the sort of one of the accusations is from Trent Horn is that we, you know we uh, those Protestants are just assuming because it's Theos and Neustos, <laughs> Numa is in there. They're just assuming this uh, as if we don't do biblical exegesis, uh, which of course we do and did, and I've demonstrated the consistency of the biblical testimony to God speaking in Scripture from Jesus, from Peter, and from Paul. And um, compare that to almost any one of the Marian dogmas. No, obviously not the virgin birth. That's a biblical teaching. But compare that to the biblical evidence for any of the other Marian dogmas. Perpetual virginity, immaculate conception, bodily assumption. They got nothing in comparison to what we've already provided from the apostles on this subject and as to the meaning of that word. So we pick up from there uh, with what Trent Horn has to say. I made, so I was very interested to see James White's response to it, and I was underwhelmed. In fact, the primary purpose of today's episode is not to teach you how to refute an argument against the faith. It's to teach you how to spot when someone is using a non-argument. It's practice to learn how to look past bluster and rhetoric and see that a person has not refuted your case. Okay, that's exactly what we're doing today because that's what Trent's doing. This is called projection. Um, What he's doing is he's changing what the subject of my video was supposed to be. I was focused on Poirier. I'm focused on the fact that Trent Horn is presenting a unique, novel, massively modern, uh, completely disconnected from church history definition of Theodostas. Now, you know, he, he will keep saying, oh, it wasn't just Poirier, I was, I was quoting you know, from the Ken debate and, and from McDonald's other work, I have it on Kindle. Uh, but he's not talking about the meaning of the word. And everything I was talking about in my video was the sources that Poirier uses, the, the databases, the Thesaurus Lingua Greci database that I've had a subscription to since the 1990s. And study of semantic domains. And again, went through all this, went through it on the video. These are things I was studying in the 80s and have had as a part of my teaching. And he said at one point that I've taught on college level. Never have. It's always been graduate level. It's always been seminary level, master's and higher. Um, And so all I was saying was, hey, if you're going to be the new guy that comes up with something that even Rome has never come up with before, then do you think you might need to have the the scholarly capacity, the training, the experience to look at the argument and go, oh, well, it's brand new, hasn't really been reviewed, goes against what everybody's said all along. Uh, So a, a thesis like that really has to have a tremendous amount of consistent argumentation. And the whole point is, the guy doesn't believe Paul wrote it. And if you can't see how that impacts the data set you're going to bring in to Paul's use, because this is Paul's use. He doesn't believe it's Paul's use. Paul didn't write it. And so I'm just I'm just like, um, you have gone out on a limb, and that limb cannot support your weight. Um, that, that cracking sound you're hearing, Trent? <laughs> it's a long ways down. <laughs> it's a long ways down. Um, so what he's doing is is he's projecting and spinning. This is damage control. I challenged him. I said, okay, look, here's the things you need to be able to do 
to be able to meaningfully analyze Poirier's thesis. And he does not have the capacity to do that. Now, he's going to try to say he has some of it, but the very fact that he spends all this time trying to demonstrate that, well, um, I can pronounce Greek words. That ain't the same thing. That's not the same thing. I, I know what a genitive is. Congratulations. I know what a genitive is in all sorts of different languages. So what? Has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So this is, this is called projection. And you, so when you've been caught doing something, you throw it back upon somebody else. And so it's going to be interesting, somewhat educational, to see what, uh, how he comes up with uh, what, he, what he has here. So, uh, but I only have a limited amount of time today, so I've got I to keep moving. But I was really eager to hear White's reply to tell me how we know Theopneustos has the meaning he and other Protestant apologists say it has. Okay, have we got that now? Did we get that in the last program? Did we did we uh, demonstrate that to answer that question is to ask the question, is Scripture even sufficient to define its own language? Well, it can't be because it's a hapax legomena. But you have contexts, and you have a context in 2 Timothy, which included the assertion that the Holy Scriptures are able, are have the capacity to make you wise unto salvation, and to then thoroughly equip you to do everything the man of God needs to do in the church. We covered this last, last time. So we've given the foundation now, and it's a biblical foundation. It's, it's not... Well, look over here, the Sibylline Oracles, and we've got something over here from 150 years later in another part of the Roman Empire, and and it has nothing to do with Christian faith. But hey, we're going to read it in here as if that's somehow influencing Paul's use. Don't you think maybe Paul's writings should be the context for Paul's use? Except it's not Paul. <laughs> there's there's the problem. So yeah, uh, we yeah okay. God breathed superior authority to all other means of transmitting doctrine. Okay, superior to all other means of transmitting. So, think about it. If it's God-breathed, if it's, if it's, if it's when you, ha- you hold your hand in front of your mouth and you feel that breath, if it's that intimate to God, what else is like that? So that's what, that's what they can't deal with. That, that's what they have to try to undercut. Now, they, they haven't in the past. But now that's what Trent Horn is doing, is he's trying to undercut that. He's trying to undercut the unique nature of Scripture. It's ontological. And we're going to, well, we'll see that in a second. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll cover uh, something about what he said later on about that. So what, what else? Now remember, who needs a rule of faith? The church does. The church is made up of sinners. Fallen men, we are not perfected in this life. And so the church can't be its own rule of faith. That's it. That is a circular monologue. That's the church talking to itself. That becomes irreformable. But he's going to suggest toward the end, well, Christ established the church, so why can't the church be theonistos? So the church becomes its own rule of faith. That sounds like, um, oh, what's that guy, bald Scottish guy? Oh, yeah, that James White guy keeps saying, Sola Ecclesia. No matter how hard they try, they just keep demonstrating they really do believe in Sola Ecclesia. They can talk about, oh, it's scripture and tradition and the 
magisterium and all the rest. Of it. And, but that magisterium always ends up defining everything else. That's how it works. So it is amazing to me that anyone would even struggle with the idea that if if God is going to establish the body of Christ on church on, on earth and in the in the church and he's going to give them a role of faith, it needs to be divine in its nature. Right? Why are we arguing about this? Well, because fundamentally Rome demands that you believe things that the apostles never taught and that they cannot even start to demonstrate taught from the pages of Scripture. They have to have another source of authority. And since they can't tell us what those traditions are, they cannot trace those traditions through church history, then it's really hard to avoid the fact that functionally, and this is, this is why the bodily assumption is a really useful thing, the last dogmatic definition made by Rome uh, almost three-quarters of a century ago now, and... Fundamentally, it requires you to believe in continuing revelation because it is not a part. There is no possibility whatsoever that this is a part of an apostolic tradition delivered orally outside of Scripture. Even if we didn't have Jesus giving us the example, don't accept when someone says something is binding upon you. That's tradition outside of Scripture. That's what the Corban rule was. Don't do it. You're violating Scripture. So, um, so what's going on here is, is we are, in fact, uh, doing what Trent says he's doing. We're demonstrating spin, damage control, bluster. Uh, and when, when you say, well, he didn't answer this. Well, if I never claimed to be answering that, then that's irrelevant. But there were all sorts of things I brought up in my responses that Trent has just skipped over. This doesn't even mention them. So I think that's far more, far, far, far more important. Instead, White claims that the alternative understanding of Theopneustos I put forward can be ignored because it comes from a liberal Protestant scholar. Of course, I never say anything of the kind. I didn't say anything could be ignored. What I said was, Trent, can you even evaluate it yourself? Do you have the training and the teaching experience and the published experience to evaluate the novel, brand new theory that you've glommed onto as the death knell of Sola Scriptura? And the answer to that is, no, you do not. And your attempts to, uh, to, to find a way around that fail badly in what we're going to be looking at. Um, but I did not say it can be ignored. I said it needs to be evaluated. And when I said that, I said, and one of the key problems with evaluating it is if the guy doesn't believe Paul wrote it, then that completely changes the data sets and the context in which you're going to evaluate those data sets. Right? Well, yeah, that, that, that would be the case. <laughs> Um, but that's getting skipped uh, by uh, what he is um, saying here. We continue on. Bear is also helpful in providing a different interpretation of the ancient Greek documents that Warfield claims support his understanding of the word. But the documents, like the sibling oracles, they're there for anyone to examine and draw their own conclusion. This isn't just the work of one scholar. Protestant scholar. Oh, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. 
Um, <clears throat> again, now what he's going to do here is he's going to he's going to confuse the use of theonosos in some New Testament writers. Now, again, this is another one of those situations where you get to pick and choose what you're going to quote from the early church, and you're going to try to create uh, the the idea that there is a consistency in the early church that does not exist. So you're using the early church to backwards define the words that are used in the New Testament. It's doing it backwards. Um no direct connection, but defenders of homosexuality do this all the time. Uh, one of the most common things that they do is they will look at utilizations, uses of arsenokoites, which, again, I think I mentioned this, but I'll mention it briefly. Um, when Jeff Neal and I were writing uh, the same-sex controversy, I used the TLG CD-ROM at that time. The website wasn't up at that point. I used TLG CD-ROM at that time to look at all the uses of arsenokoites in the Greek literature, and there was one possible use that was before or contemporaneous with Paul. Depends on the canons, and those canons sometimes change as far as the dating and, and stuff like that goes. And I include that information in, in the book. Well, all sorts of revisionist scholars will go to uses of arsenokoites two, three, four hundred years after Paul and say, see, this author used it this way, so that must mean that Paul was doing that. And that's not a valid form of argumentation at all. And in fact, would... Now, it's, it's one thing. It's good to have in your lexical database all the uses of a particular term, even terms that come at a later point, because that can give you an idea of how things developed. But you can also look and go, okay, here's here's something that is being used outside of a Jewish or Christian context. It's being used in the context of pagan religion. And what's going to be more important to the definition of Theodostos as Paul's writing to Timothy? Pagan uses two or three hundred years later or use that's consistent with Pauline theology, Pauline exhortation, what Paul uh, said to the Ephesian elders as he was uh, bidding goodbye to them, uh, the consistent emphasis that Paul has on a consistent doctrine, a faith that has been delivered to the saints, which is going to be more important. It's, it's obvious, um, but a lot of people ignore that kind of thing because they don't believe in a consistency of scripture uh, at all. So, uh, and notice, once again, don't you think there would need to be some mention, Trent, about the, the, the huge elephant in the room? Why don't you tell your folks? And yeah, obviously, one of the, one of the big issues is that Poirier does not believe Paul wrote these words that these are second-century forgeries. Don't you think that's important? Don't you think that might sort of possibly undercut your thesis? Just a little bit? Um, we, will, we will see. Uh, we will see in the, uh, in the future. I also point out in the episode that you can't arrive at White's definition of Theopneustos by merely saying the component parts form God-breathed. That's the root fallacy. That's like saying lady killer means female murderer. 
And even if it does mean God breathed, how does White know that it's used in an exclusive sense to mean something unique about Scripture, and Theopneustos could not be used for non-biblical writings, as MacDonald shows happened in the early church? White's response to my argument dealing with the root fallacy is pure bluster. Watch this clip and try to find his argument. Must have this meaning because that's what theos and panuma mean. But that is what the Protestant scholar D.A. Carson called the root fallacy. Now, what he then, then did here, now come on, Trent. He's not, these, these Protestants, they're just, you know, it's because it's theos and pneuma and, and that's, that's um, Trent, I don't believe you've actually read Warfield. I have. Decades ago. And I can read all of his languages. Uh, I can make my way. I've taught Greek, Hebrew. I've taken Latin. Um, not, I, I'm not bad with German. My Wortschatz is ein bisschen klein. Ich habe keine Leute mitzusprechen. Um, but... I can read Warfield and I can analyze Warfield just as I can analyze Poirier. And so what you're doing here is you're doing the, I'm going to refute the simplistic arguments and gain myself some credibility in the process. And yet the, all the people that you showed, we all, we all read Carson a long time ago. I was teaching my students the basics of what Carson was saying in exegetical fallacies in the 90s. So don't go there unless you were teaching these things in the 90s in your Greek classes, which I don't think you were. So I don't need to add too much to that other than to point out why is he going here again? I've demonstrated this is an attempt to gain authority and weight by assuming, by making the assertion that we, and evidently everybody who makes lexicons these days, um, that we are simply assuming something and we are engaging in the root fallacy. He hasn't demonstrated that any of us sat here and said, well, Theonostos, it must mean God breathed because it's of, of these two roots. I've never said that. Where have I said that? Document it. Prove it. I know that's not how it works because I actually read Greek. So it was it was invalid to bring it up initially. This isn't blustering. This is demonstrating that you were blustering, and you were trying to create a air of respectability and scholarship, and at the same time attack those on the other side as if we're just simplistic simpletons who have never read Exegetical Fallacies by D.A. Carson. And I blew it away in the first thing, and I don't even need to repeat it, because it is just that obviously bad of a argument and presentation. So I don't even know why you, why you repeated it. Um, no one is claiming that the meaning is derived solely from its parts. Uh, all of us who have functional literacy in the Greek language know the basic things that Carson was saying. Um, and so... This was this stands as a clear example of of where Trent Horn can be corrected on something and he'll just double down on it. He'll just go up, oh, I'm just gonna repeat it again. So I'm not sure what audience you're trying to reach, uh, Trent, but it's it's not one that I think can analyze uh things really really well here.
Of course, I could say the church is an infallible rule of faith because Jesus established the church. Okay, I, I, I told you this was coming. But I want you to think about, because this, this touches on ultimate issues of epistemological foundation and ultimate authorities. And I've said for a long, long time, Rome believes in sola ecclesia. When you push and when you, when you prod, when you turn the fan on to blow, the, blow all the dust out of the air, um, it's going to come down to why? Because the church says so. And we are saying that the church needs a rule of faith. And that rule of faith cannot be something that is internal to the church in the sense of a part of her own makeup. Because then she can never be reformed. And if you read the New Testament, uh, you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians and, oh, there's a church that needs to be reformed. And you read Paul's epistles, uh, Paul, Jesus' letters to the seven churches, uh, in almost all of them, there was something that needed to be reformed. So there was a rule of faith that the church doesn't get to define. And if it's Christ's church, then the only source of that needs to be from Christ himself. So it has to be God-breathed. It has to be of that highest authority. And if it's anything less than that, um, then the church is on its own and can end up coming up with dogmas like the bodily assumption of Mary, which no one nearly church believed. And like I said, one more time, there is not a single bishop at the Council of Nicaea that believed dogmatically the things Trent Horn believes today as dogma in the Roman Catholic Church. Not a one of them. Oh, but it's all the same church. That requires continuing revelation. Whether you, whether you want to admit it or not, you are promoting a concept of continuing revelation. Oh, but it's oral tradition. Yeah, and you don't get to, you have never told us what that oral tradition is. You just get to pull it out and define it whatever you jolly well feel like it. Sola Ecclesia, over and over and over again. The church cannot be her own rule of faith. She needs a rule of faith. Just as scripturally teaching, and man, I'm almost afraid to even mention anything about this given Twitter these days, but there's something in Scripture about uh, Christ being the head of the man and the man being the head of the woman and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so if Christ is the head of the church and loves the church as the husband is to love the wife, then there needs to be a rule of faith, a consistent objective standard. And what many Roman Catholics are struggling with today, and properly so, is that the pontificate of Francis, and it's highly probable that the next pope will only exacerbate this, given that Francis has stacked the College of Cardinals with his own acolytes, that Francis is a clear demonstration that whatever you believe about apostolic succession, there can be no objective content that is preserved by that succession. You can turn it into some kind of nebulous connectivity all you want, but unless it connects you to apostolic teaching, it's, it's irrelevant. 
And what Francis demonstrates is you just you pick you pick any pope uh, before 1900. You could really pick any pope through John Paul II, but just for sake of contrast, you you pick any pope before 1900 and compare them to Francis. And apostolic succession as a concept becomes a joke as far as being able to guarantee any kind of consistent epistemological transmission of truth, standards, anything. Just the way it is. Uh, the church needs a rule of faith. The church cannot be its own rule of faith. He doesn't examine the other sources like I did to see how early Jews and Christians used the word. So what he's doing is he's, he's saying... I read secondary sources that I've had in my library since, I don't think I put a date in this one, but for a long, long time, this is 21 years old, uh, I read secondary sources, and I read as much of Poirier as I could, but I couldn't evaluate his arguments because I've not studied these fields, don't have access to the databases that he used. And... Uh, I have no experience teaching. That's him. So I've done that, and he didn't. Like I said, um, I've been dealing with this subject for a very, very, very long time, and dealing with these areas for a very, very, very long time. And so it's just untrue. What My focus, again, was why is it that it's a Roman Catholic apologist? doing the brand new novel, not approved by the magisterium, not uh, evaluated by scholarship as a whole, not reviewed, just published, but this is this is our ace in the hole argumentation. I, my point is, A, that's grossly inconsistent for Rome to do in the first place. B, Trenhorn is not in a position to actually evaluate the value and worth of Poirier's arguments. Prove me wrong. Um, and so far he hasn't, but what he does in the process is really, really interesting. Now, finally, after all of this, he gets to the Hopox Legomena thing. And I want you to listen to this because what he does here is he, he does the, I'm a victim thing. All right. What he's going to do is he's going to say he found a place where he was reviewing Mike Winger. And Mike Winger used an unusual pronunciation of papacy. He called it papacy. Um, I've actually heard people use that phraseology. Don't really think too much about it one way or the other. But he tries, he, he, he said, you know, let's not pick on him about this. He doesn't mention that what I said is when I first saw in his tweet, Hoplach's legomena. I just figured it was a typo. I didn't jump all over it. It wasn't until I listened to the video and realized, wait a minute, he really does think it's Hoplox Legomena. And then my argument was this. If you have Greek capacity and facility, then you have encountered the word Hopox, especially if you're a Roman Catholic apologist. Why? Because it is key and central to the issue of the once-for-allness of the sacrifice of Christ. You can't read the book of Hebrews. Now look, Hebrews, is, Hebrews, Luke, and Acts are the toughest Greek in the New Testament. 
They're the most classical. The syntactical, regular syntactical formulation, and that's why I think Luke wrote Hebrews. I think it was Paul that preached it, but Luke wrote it in Greek. Um, is utterly non-Pauline and uh, very difficult to just read at speed if what you're used to are the Gospels, well, not including Luke, um, or, or Paul. But the point is, there are key, key texts where hapox and ephapox, which is just the strengthened form of hapox, are used on the key disputed texts on the once-for-allness of the sacrifice of Christ. Non-repetitive. No representation in an unbloody fashion. In fact, it's that onceness that is the argument against the continuing offering of sacrifices in the temple, which are a reminder of sins, whereas Christians have a reminder of their sin-bearer. And so when the Mass does not perfect you, it falls in the same category as those old sacrifices that didn't perfect you either. That's the whole point. And so what I said was, look, if you teach New Testament, I don't teach New Testament every day or every year. I've, I've taught Greek and Greek exegesis and topics in that area over the years. But I've taught a wide variety of topics um, requiring knowledge in a wide variety of places. And even in my teaching, you are going to encounter the phrase hapax legomena with regularity. And so I had said, hey, this seems to indicate to me that this is not an area that Trent Horn is familiar with. And so he calls this ad hominem argumentation against the man. Well, think about it for just a second. What was my video about? A Roman Catholic apologist who's presenting a brand new theory that has zero magisterial support. Even if the magisterium came out tomorrow and said, hey, we're making Poirier a saint, it would still mean that before they did any of that, before he had any kind of epistemological certainty at all, Trent Horn presented a completely novel, unique, never before heard in 2,000 years of church history interpretation of the meaning of Theonistos as an argument against Protestantism. And I simply said, hey, do you have the capacity to engage in this? Do, do you have the training? This is a specialized area. That's not ad hominem. I didn't say Trent Horn wears funny t-shirts under his short sleeve shirts and therefore you shouldn't believe what he has to say. That's ad hominem. What I did was not ad hominem at all. Um, so notice how he does the I'm a victim, James White's a meanie thing here. So here we go. It's on the point about Theopneustos only appearing once in scripture that White engages in an ad hominem argument against me by saying that I just don't understand New Testament Koine Greek, so I'm just not capable of making a correct analysis of the word or Poirier's scholarship, which, as I said, was not the only scholarship I relied on. White makes a lot of hay. But it was the only scholarship making the argument for the vivification translation 
of Theanustas. Everything else you've got from McDonald and others is wider applications of Theanustas, not the vivification definition, Trent. I'm not going to let you get away with this. I'm sorry. But you've, you've, you've planted your flag here. You're stuck with it. You decide to grab hold of a 2022 publication and run with it. Well, tattoo his name on your arm because you're stuck with it now. And it's not ad hominem to point out that you did not analyze his argumentation appropriately. Out of the fact that in a Twitter post recently and in my video, I referred to a word that only appears once in the New Testament as a haplax legomenon instead of by the correct term, hapax legomenon. Before I show White's reply, compare how White acts to me to how I acted when I rebutted Mike Winger several years ago. In that video, I noted that Winger mispronounced the word papacy and called it papacy instead. So note my response to Winger. And basically the papacy. It exists now, Jesus institutes it, and it's in this passage, and a minister of the sheep. But what you notice is this, whatever Jesus is doing here, this says nothing about a papacy. I mean, you would never read this if you didn't know about the papacy. You'd never read the Bible and come up with that doctrine. It just would never happen. It would never occur to you. Uh, one point, as I mentioned in my previous videos, don't give Pastor Mike a hard time about papacy, saying papacy instead of papacy. Uh, <laughs> I pronounce things differently than a lot of other people, so that's that's not a big deal here. Now, Okay, let me just let me just make sure that we're all tracking here. This has nothing to do with Trent Horn's failure to recognize a Greek term that is fundamentally a part of New Testament scholarship and discussion of lexicography. Nothing. Mike Winger mispronouncing or having a unique way of saying papacy instead of papacy has nothing to do with this. There is no logical or scholarly connection whatsoever. The whole point was, if you don't know what a hopox legomena is, I don't think you're in a position to analyze Poirier's argumentation concerning stuff like... Uh, oh, ignore, go away. I hate those things that just pop up. You're not in a position to analyze his utilization of... Uh, lexical sources from the TLG or semantic domain studies or anything like that. You're just not. Sorry. And what you try to do here by demonstrating that you've memorized uh, lines of a few words of in Greek and used them in a debate. Look, if you, you say you claim you've studied Koine Greek, what school, what years, how long? A part of what degree study was it was it about? So, I took seven years. Okay, I took three years minored in Greek at Grand Canyon College under Dr. Mike Baird, who himself learned under uh, Jane Niles Puckett, who was a student of A.T. Robertson. Okay, and then I did four years with Dr. Baird at Fuller Theological Seminary. So seven years, and then when I graduated from seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary. I began teaching Greek, first-year Greek, um, for Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, a, a, a Southern Baptist seminary, their campus in Phoenix, Arizona. Met on the same campus of Grand Canyon. 
Dr. Baird taught the second year classes. And while I was doing that, they asked me to teach Hebrew. And I was like, but they were having trouble getting anybody through Hebrew. And so I was like, okay. And I, I got people through Hebrew. I got people through Hebrew exegesis. Yay. Great. Okay. That was a long time ago. Anyways, point is, um, I can just give that information. There's my background. And he's going to show that in a 2017 book that Hopox appears correctly in his book. Okay, was that caught by the editor? I mean, do you know? Do you remember? This little while ago, uh, he's like, well, you know, it was just a mind thing or something. Okay, fine. My point is, I wouldn't make that mistake because I know the field. And it's evidence that he does not. That's been the point from the start. Um, and I, I think it's... So, 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 Trent, once again... Where did you take Greek? How many semesters? What level was it at? Was it was it undergraduate, graduate? Have you ever taught Greek? Where? For how long? What level? I asked those questions in Twitter, and this was your response. You don't give an answer to these things. And what you do give seemingly demonstrates that what you're saying is, I've learned enough about Greek that I can pronounce the, the words. And memorize words. Okay? That's not enough to analyze Poirier, which was my point from the start. And, hey, I'm not the one that decided to use a brand new study as the death knell of Sola Scriptura. That was your choice. That was a pretty bold thing to do, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm a little surprised that there weren't other people of Catholic answers that said, whoa, yo, dude, <laughs> not a Catholic. And, um, you know, might, you know, maybe the magisterium might want to say something about, you know, whoa, you know, you're, you're really going to, you're walking out on a, on a, on a pretty tiny limb there, man. But maybe nobody caught it. I don't know. Ran with it too fast. I, I, I don't know. I'll compare my response to Winger to White's response to me misspeaking and saying haplax legomenon instead of hapax legomenon. Not just misspeaking, mistyping. Okay? Like I said, when it was in the tweet, I thought, eh, typo. But then when it's in the spoken part as well, then that means there is a fundamental misunderstanding. And that has nothing to do with papacy papacy at all. And so, yes, Theonustos is a hapox legomenon. But when I realized that Trent didn't, wasn't even familiar with the terminology, what that tells me is we're not talking about someone who is in a position to actually critically analyze what Poirier's argument is. Because if you don't know hapox legomena, you probably don't read Greek. And if you don't read Greek, you're probably not using the TLG CD-ROM or now TLG website. You're probably not familiar with Thetharis and Gregeki. You probably have not done semantic studies in lexicography, semantic domains, familiar with lexicons that are based upon semantic domains, things like that. You're not in a position to be analyzing what Poirier is saying. I'm not sure what White means when he says, I can't read Greek. I have studied Attic and Koine Greek, so I certainly can read Greek that has not been transliterated into English. Okay, as soon as someone... As soon as someone says, 
I can read Greek that has not been transliterated in English. That does not sound to me like someone is saying, I can actually live translate Greek. That I have not only sufficient vocabulary knowledge to do so, because uh, anybody can run across uh, a hopox or something that's only used two or three times. Hebrews, Peter, whew, they, they can throw some wild stuff at you. That's not the issue. Can you read the Greek text? Can you, as you see it, okay, participle, verb, there's my modifiers, you know, th- th- I understand how this preposition works with this case, and you know, can you read it so that you can follow an argument that would be based upon syntactical categories? Do you, um, if I were to say to you, which case system do you use? And when looking at uh, ablative functions for the genitive form, what are what are you what are the categories that you would uh, separate out from the genitive or combine in with 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 the genitive in distinguishing with the ablative or you know do you do five case eight case th- this kind of stuff when you are dealing with syntax of participles. Okay, circumstantial mode, just so much that that goes into accurately translating participles. Are you capable of doing that? Where did you learn it? How long did you study it? How long did you teach it if, you, if you've taught it? These are simple questions. They are not ad hominem at all. You, rate, you opened this door in a public debate when you presented this as a valid argument against the understanding of sola scriptura. And let me, let me, well, I'll, I'll wait, I'll wait, I'll wait. <laughs> I keep jumping ahead of myself. I don't have every element of Greek vocabulary memorized, and hapax is not one of the 300 major words that make up the New Testament. But you can see my ability to handle Greek in this debate that I had with Richard Carrier, where I quote Galatians 1.19 in Greek from memory. I was debating Carrier on the question of whether Jesus ever existed. And in that debate, Carrier was arguing about a particular detail of the Greek construction of Galatians 1.19, to make the case that James was not actually an apostle and brother of the Lord— which would be weird because Carrier says Jesus never existed. He claims James is just a random Christian, a brother in the Lord. So it hinges on the Greek words that are used here in Galatians 1.19 to describe James. And so here's how I engage Carrier in that clip and reference the Greek construction in that verse. My, my response to that is the peer-reviewed article Richard is citing is just one that was written Back in the 70s, it's one, but the major translations do translate the passage. In Greek, I believe it says, uh, heteron, deton, apostolone, ukedon. Uh, so that would be, uh, but other of the apostles, because it's in the genitive, other of. Uh, it's not a genitive of comparison, which Richard might try to argue it's other than. It's others of the apostles, ton apostolon, ukedon, I saw not. A may except, which is an exceptionary clause, uh, Jacobon Ton Adelphone to Curio, James, the brother of the Lord. And I just don't find Dr. Carrier's explanation plausible. Second, prior to White's recording of his episode, 
I posted multiple times in response to him on social media that I used Hapax Legomenon correctly in my 2017 book, The Case for Catholicism. I wrote, I'm not sure why I misremembered Hapax as Haplax, but I have used the word correctly before. Here are two examples from my 2017 book, The Case for Catholicism. I would attribute my recent mistake to a mental slip. We all have them, end quote. And you can see in this picture here where I use them in my book. Finally, why... Okay, uh, I did not see those. Um, there's all sorts of stuff that comes across Twitter that I, I never see. Um, Rich tells me about stuff. In fact, when we started the program, you were saying that there's uh, something, Stratton is doing something on Twitter, and I, I look at mine, and I look at all the notifications, up, I see nothing. Zip zero nada. So I never saw it. But again, that would be something that an editor would catch. Um, and okay, so you did it right in 2017 and go ahead and say, it's a simple point. You don't seem to be familiar with the language on the level that would, that would be required for you to meaningfully interact with a unique thesis that overthrows all the currently published lexicons on the Greek language. Uh, okay. Um, and what's interesting is he's going to do a real bad uh, and miss it again because like like this this part of the argument, there's no parallel between his mispronunciation of hypoxagomena and Mike Winger's of papacy. Next, he's going to bring up Arabic. And again, there's no connection. Uh, and then he's going to preemptively try to deal with the reality that Rome has never offered this definition either. I mean, you're really, really going way down the road. I just get the real feeling you're going to get so far down around the turn, you're going to be out there pretty much alone eventually. Um, but anyway, so here's the next one. Um, and and here's here's how he presents it. Finally, White's critique reveals a huge inconsistency on his part. White's claim is that if you don't have a reading proficiency in Greek, if you aren't someone who has taught Greek in college-level courses like he has, or seminary-level courses, actually, then you can't make an argument on what a particular Greek word means or doesn't mean. Okay, it's not... Ding, 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 ding. Not the argument. Everybody knows it, Trent. Everybody can see it by now. I don't know why you're going here. What I'm saying is, this is a novel, unique... Brand new theoretical perspective that it should be, it's life-giving, not God-breathed. And to my knowledge, no one in the Roman magisterium has said, yep, that's what it is. And he's going to say, well, that's because Rome normally doesn't do that. Well, we'll comment on that as well. But it's a novel perspective that you said is the death knell of Sola Scriptura. And that we've simply been assuming the meaning rather than providing a foundation for the definition of that meaning. And we've now demonstrated that all of that's false. And so it's not, oh, you can't make a comment about uh, the meaning of a word. It's a novel, brand new, never before heard of theory that does require you to have a capacity to utilize sources such as the TLG CD-ROM and to understand the study of semantic domains. And from what you're saying right now, you are demonstrating you do not possess those capacities. 
or you would have just simply given us that information. Well, actually, I took this many years of Greek at such and such a place, and I've taught it here, and here's evidence from my publications. You know, I can... King James only controversy, the God who justifies the forgotten trinity. I've got decades of published works that demonstrate capacity in the original language and especially in Greek. And if you had that, you could point it out, but you're not. And so that pretty much demonstrates what's going on here. And what you're about to do now was sort of embarrassing. But I'm starting to wonder, Rich, honestly, if this is just another example of uh, where the uh, transcript function is being used (laughs) on the website, because they sure can pull stuff up. Now, here's the problem. White has written a book called What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. He's also debated Muslim apologists. And in the course of those debates, White made arguments related to the meaning of the Quranic text. And yet I'm confident James White does not have a proficiency in medieval Arabic anywhere close to the proficiency he has in Greek. He certainly can't teach the subject, and he has admitted in debates with Muslims that he has had to struggle through Arabic. Having read the Quran numerous times, having uh, taken advantage of, of early tafsir literature, and doing my best to try to understand the Quran in its language. I've learned just enough Arabic. I, I, I hobble along on my Hebrew, basically, to read through sections of the Quran in Arabic. And one of the things that caught me, and I don't know if you've, uh, how much Arabic you've studied, and my Arabic has become horrifically rusty, unfortunately. Um, but I did have a tutor for a number of years. But here's the thing. You don't have to have a reading proficiency of the Arabic in the Quran in order to engage Islam. It helps, but it's not necessary. And you don't need a reading proficiency of Greek to engage the biblical text. Catch it? Is, is it not absolutely astonishingly clear? We're not talking about engaging the biblical text. We're talking about evaluating a novel, brand new theory. Everybody can see this astonishing to me that you'd be willing to go here. So, this is not a parallel. Let me show you what a parallel would be. If I were to say to the Muslim world, uh, if someone came up with a theory about a particular uh, Arabic construction in the Quran, that they say fundamentally changes the claims of prophethood by Muhammad. And it's never been heard of before. It hasn't been reviewed. It goes against all the lexical sources that are currently in print. If I were to present that in a debate, it just came out a year earlier. First of all, I would think that that is really inappropriate to do. And I thought it was inappropriate for Trent Horn to do that. And you can document when Jay Smith did that against Shabir Ali in a debate about six, seven years ago. I criticized Jay for doing that because there's no way that Shabir can analyze the, the paper and the article when it's just brand new, just came out. Or in fact, come to think of it, I'm not even sure it had been published. But anyway, um, if I did that in a debate and I said, here is a brand new published work that you've probably never seen before that overthrows all Arabic scholarship on this construction in the Quran. 
then any Muslim would have the right to say to me, do you have the capacity to meaningfully analyze that argument to see whether it has validity or not? And my Arabic would not be up to it. And your Greek is not up to analyzing Poirier. Case closed. Case closed. Done. You just made my point for me. Yeah, definitely. Just demonstrated. All I had to do was clarify what's actually going on. And it's ouch. Um, really, really ouch, ouch. Okay, we, I'm going to try to get done here because I need to, be, need to be going. Even if the word should not be translated in the active sense like God breathing, White and other Protestant apologists assume that the word connotes a unique authority to Scripture alone, but I've showed that this is not how the word was used in the early church. Here's how Now, once again, I have, I have demonstrated, no, you have alleged, the idea that anybody has the capacity to not only master the early church, but in light of the sparsity of surviving material. You might say, oh, we got 38 volumes. No, I'm talking about early church, maybe first 300 years. Anybody who reads Eusebius knows how many times he will quote somebody, and you look at the note, we don't have it anymore. That's a book no longer in possession of anyone on earth. And so this is the only thing we've got. And so you can't check Eusebius's context or anything like that at all. And there's... Even, even with people that we have a fair amount of their writings, we know that from their writings they wrote other stuff that we don't have. So I made this point yesterday uh, with Jeff because this came up again, this constant willingness to say the early church did this and the early church did that. The only honest thing you can say is that certain individuals in the extant literature that still exists said this or said that. And if you're really honest, if we know they wrote other stuff, then you have to always go, now, that's only in this one thing. There may have been he may, you know, there might be a whole other book out there that would have given us a completely different understanding of it, but we just don't have it. And so there has to be humility and a hesitation. Not, I have demonstrated that the early church did this. <laughs> You've demonstrated nothing of the kind. And you haven't demonstrated that even if the early church did it consistently, that post-writing of the New Testament that these folks define the meaning of these words. There were all sorts of things. There are all sorts of examples of going to, uh, especially in the apostolic period, through the apostolic fathers and into the apologists. They don't even have a completed canon. They don't have a completed canon. Can you imagine what our arguments would be like on justification? We didn't have Romans. And especially the, the pastoral epistles, since they were written to per individual persons, they don't start uh, uh, circulating nearly as quickly as the rest of the Pauline corpus does. So, you know, P46 uh, has the major Pauline 
uh, epistles, but not the not the pastorals in it. And that impacts things. That impacts how you define terms. That impacts if you're looking at this particular writer using this particular term. It impacts how you are to interpret those things. Um. So I'm going to uh, make a note here. Uh, go back to the text here. Uh, 1625. Oops. Okay, and I will mark that out. Oops. And we will start there um, next time, because I, I would love to go long, but pastoral duties call. Uh, pastoral duties call. So we will, uh, I've only got uh, six minutes worth of stuff, basically. And that's just six minutes in his video. Um, but there's there's still some important stuff in there. And so we will get to it um, next time around. That won't be, that's not enough for an entire program, but we'll, we'll get to it. And uh, uh, I didn't know if I'd get to it or not, but anyway, it's not unusual, not unusual. All right. Thank you very, very much for listening to The Dividing Line today. Like I said, Lord willing, uh, next week we'll be back with that and so many other things because for some reason things keep happening. Thanks for watching the program. We'll see you next time. God bless.